Kia ora. Welcome to Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. I'm Andrew Dixon. It's good to have you here. Tato, no mai ki te kōnei ipurangi, ki te wiki o te reo Māori tēnei. Hello, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. This week is the week of Māori language, a week we get to celebrate uh, the indigenous language of Aotearoa. And by pure coincidence, because I'm either not that good or not that token, um, you choose, I managed to schedule this amazing corridor with a stunning wahine Māori who contributes to our kaupapa by inviting us to have courageous conversations about race. Kat has spent a lot of her time and energy teaching people how to do this and exploring how this translates into her life and the life of her whānau. If you're joining us for the first time, you're very welcome. Uh, the kaupapa of this podcast is simply to corridor with ordinary people who are doing what they do to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. This conversation with Kat is full of insight challenge, vulnerability, grace and hope. It really is a stunning corridor, so without further ado, this is episode 14 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Kat Poi. And that dynamic of navigating, are you going to shut me down? Are you going to minimise my perspective? Are you going to demand more information and evidence? Are you going to illegitimize my feelings? Are you going to shut down my belief? Um, are you going to walk away? Are you going to raise your voice at me? I've had a whole lifelong learning around what those dynamics are when I'm bringing forward my racial perspective. I'm here today with my good friend Kat Poi. Kia ora. Hoa. Kia ora. Uh, Nohia Kwe, where are you from? Uh, well, Tino Timihi Kia Kwe Ehua, um, no Waikato Tainu Yahoo, Kititaho Taku Mama, Kititaho Taku Papa, no Tuana Nui Kiwa, Aho. Um, I, I hail from Waikato Tainu on my mum's side and Tiaroa Rotorua. Um, which I have less of a connection to at this point in my life. And on my father's side, uh, I have whakapapa connections up into Tonga and further up into Ireland, which I have n- cool. no connection with. Um, but, yeah, born in Australia on the lands of the Bunjalung people and uh, came back to New Zealand as a toddler and has spent the majority of my time in Tāmaki. And and so that our listeners get a little bit of a picture of where we're going to head with this conversation, do you want to just give us a an overview of what are you currently up to with like work and study and stuff? Yeah, I am busy in these uh, turbulent times. Um, my day job is equity transformation consultant Indigenous, uh, and so I work for Courageous Conversation South Pacific Institute. Um, in short, I work inside organisations to support people and how to have healthy, generative, productive conversations about race and racism as a 
as an inherent normal part of um, how they go about their daily life, um, personal and professional. Um, and I'm also uh, silly enough, I guess, to be doing my PhD at the moment, um, also tied to uh, race and racism, specifically looking at a concept known as uh, white fragility. So I'm interested in exploring Māori experiences of white fragility in the public sector of where the majority of my work currently sits. Uh, how would you, I guess, just help us understand that term? What's white fragility as you understand mm. it? Um, white fragility is a term that I was socialized into through the work of Robin D'Angelo. So she is a white American woman who uh, unashamedly writes and speaks to specifically uh, white Pakia audiences. Um, nonetheless, when I attended a couple of her master classes a few years ago up in the States, she I heard her speak into white fragility as... Um, White people's, her words, uh, white people's inability to tolerate racial discomfort and uh, the fragility piece rests in uh, their poor response when people of colour or Indigenous people bring race into interracial dialogue. It's the mm. poor responses that play out which work to uh, shut people of colour and Indigenous people's perspectives down. Um, and that really resonated with me in my own experience as a wahine Māori living and working in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I was, um, and so I'm interested in how that plays out here from an Indigenous specific um, place and perspective. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, there's, there's so <laughs> much we can talk about. So much we can talk about. Um, <laughs> let, let's let's go back though to when I first met you. Hmm. Uh, you were you were still studying actually, weren't you? Um, yeah, you were my I'd, you were my tutor. I'm pretty I was, sure my I was undergraduate your, yeah, degree. I was, I was your tutor, and um, and then later your colleague, uh, and we we're both working working in sport management and marketing education. Um, so lots has happened since then, clearly. What, uh, what what was it that prompted the shift in focus for you from that mm. um, the sport education side of things, the sport management side of things, through to mm. what you're doing now? Yeah, big question. Um, I chose to study sport um, because I believed that was the only thing that I was good at. I didn't have a very good time um, through the secondary school education system. Um, here in New Zealand and so left secondary school uh, with an inability to go on to further study and having quite um, negative perceptions about my ability to succeed in formal learning and uh, even though deep deep down I knew I wasn't stupid um, the system had worked inside me in a way that I had developed negative attitudes about myself as a learner. And so I went traveling for a couple of years and came back and thought, uh, actually, I really enjoy learning. And I was uh, really, really good at sport. And um, Unitech was down the road from where I was living. I'd heard really great things about the program enrolled. 
And what I learned was that I actually love learning and I love education. So it was through sport that I learned that I love to learn. And through at the completion of my undergraduate degree, was offered a job um, as a tutor and then became a lecturer and then led out in the uh, undergraduate and diploma programs and so became immersed in uh, higher education and the polytechnic environment um, and uh, learnt the ways of the institution and learnt the ways of um, higher education as an industry. And it was also through that professional experience that I uh, began to understand how institutional racism um, contributes to the sustained disparity that we see amongst Māori and Pacific students specifically. Um, so with that, I ended up in an institutional role, staying at Unitech, um, doing a role called Kaihotu Mātauranga Māori, and it's a Māori-specific role that was um, charged with supporting faculties to implement the Māori success strategy. And at that time, that's when uh, I really got to understand how institutional racism plays out in teachers and administrators and educational leaders that lead to uh, the negative outcomes that we see for Māori learners. And I found myself in that job um, having conversations where I would often leave feeling really frustrated. Um, I would often seek to try and put accountability of the teachers on the table and be met with lots of resistance around why teachers didn't necessarily um, need to change but students needed to pull their boots Māori students needed to pull their bootstraps up and Māori students don't come to class and Māori students are always late and uh, you know Māori students don't like studying and Māori students don't have the uh, support um, from their whānau and, um, you know, a whole plethora of ex of uh, reasons for why um, teachers couldn't understand how potentially their choices and actions and their practice were contributing to the outcomes that we see. And so I started engaging in um, a program of work called Courageous Conversations, which was brought to Unitech by um, my colleague, who's now my uh, director at Courageous Conversations. His name's Dr. Matthew Ferry. He had come across the work of Glenn Singleton um, and had done some consultation with Kuya uh, and Komatua at Unitech and asked, would this program of work be of benefit to Māori? And they said, absolutely, it would be of benefit. Um, however, it must not replace any other kind of uh, professional development or education that's Māori-specific or treaty-based. Um, and it must include uh, Māori in the training, the Māori perspective and Māori voices mustn't be... Um, kind of silenced or sidelined if this program of work is to be brought. 
And so that's how I got involved. And we set up an institute um, at Unitech in 2016. And then Unitech uh, leadership struggled to uh, provide it the requisite resource and care. And so we broke away. And now it's just a thriving, flourishing entity um, that sits as a subsidiary of Pacific Educational Group up in the United States. So our work in Aotearoa New Zealand acknowledges the treaty-based context and acknowledges that race relations here is um, different, has a, it's historically different, um, and but it is useful to explore the connections and the complexities and the comparisons that exist in other jurisdictions such as the United States and their racial context. So yeah, in essence, I do professional development and coaching around anti-racism. I find that really, uh, I, I guess, a really good picture, what you were saying about the the lecturers' attitudes and the students and the, the stereotypes that uh, become what is believed. And I guess the we've talked on the podcast before about when you're the majority, it's easy to not realise that you're part of a system um, because you're. it's just the way that it is. And what I hear you saying is actually that that kind of blinds people to the ways that they personally are involved in this. 100%. Uh, because they just think this is how it is. 100%. 100%. Often in training we'll say, you know, things didn't just fall out of the sky and land here. You know, the education system isn't a system that is just, it's it's a social construction. And so if it's not working for everyone, then we need to explore the ways in which we need to deconstruct it so that it is working for everybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that you're totally right. The way in which uh, the dominant culture works to invisibilize the fact that everything that we see and do comes from somewhere. And often that is not um, reflective of who it is that I am as a wahine Māori or who it is that I um, am aspiring to be in my life as a wahine Māori. Um, you know, it's very difficult for sometimes to make the required changes when there's an invisibility of of the dominance of a particular culture. Yeah, it, and hearing your personal story about you know coming through school and not having the the thing fit you very well. Um, I've seen like when I was teaching at Unitech, I saw that time and time again, particularly with Maori and Polynesian students who came in and went, oh, school wasn't really for me, but I was really good at sport. But part of that is actually that school wasn't for them because they were shepherded in the sport direction once someone saw they had some talent there, but then didn't provide them space to show their talents in other spaces. 100%. I'm already seeing that with my own children. Right. I'm already seeing that with my own children. My son, bless him, loves rugby league and... He's like, Mum, I want to be an NRL player when I grow up. And I just, I said to him, I said, you know what, son, I want to support you in whatever dreams that you have. And I offer, I offer that maybe the world doesn't need another Māori rugby league player. You know, maybe maybe Māori people need us to be thinking of the things that we can contribute to our people in a different kind of way. And you can still play rugby league and if you want to be an NRL player, all good, but it's, yeah, it's tricky. And I know that that um, that he is getting those ideas fed to him 
really pervasively really pervasively through the dominant culture about what where he sees himself reflected in society where um where he sees himself legitimate in society um it's no surprise that he wants to be a rugby league yeah. player and mihiatu to all the rugby league players out there i i dig you all <laughs> i love rugby league so yeah fascinating so when you when you have these courageous conversations or when you go in and train people in these courageous conversations, what does a courageous conversation look like? Mm. Um, I mean, so, I, I know that's like an entire series of workshops, but, yeah. but in five seconds. Yeah. The- <laughs> uh, courageous conversations about race uses the protocol, a protocol which Glenn Singleton developed 30 years ago-ish so it's really it's really quite simple. It's the use of uh, three tools which comprise the courageous conversation about race protocol to have um, intra-racial, so conversations with self and conversations with people who are racially similar to yourself, as well as interracial, so people who are racially different to you, um, dialogue about race and racism with a particular purposeful intent to explore how um, structures, systems, policies and practices are interfering with our ability to achieve equitable outcomes for all people. I, f- I find that uh, really interesting that the first thing you started talking about was the uh, within yourself and within your own culture. Because um, a lot of us, when we think of this anti-racism work or this um, bicultural or whatever you want to call it, Often we think of engaging with people that are of a different space to you, a different ethnicity to you. And to hear you saying, actually, one of the first things you need to do is engage with yourself. What do I think about this? What are the things that have... The first. Yeah. The first thing. Yeah. And so... The first thing. So that's that's a really great challenge to go, actually, the first thing is let's let's look at my own beliefs, my own views, my the way that I see the world, because that will contribute to the way that you then engage in the conversation. Completely. And so if as a wahine Māori, I value whanaungatanga and all that it means to be in a healthy relationship with other people, if I'm not in a healthy relationship with myself and I'm not able to understand how um, what my experience is like as a brown Māori woman in New Zealand, I'm going to miss the opportunity to explore how experiences for other people and um, how they're making sense of them are the same or different. And I have a belief that until we really get uh, to grips with the depth of who we are, which includes exploring who we are racially, then we're denying ourselves the opportunity to understand what a full human experience is. So I can't talk about uh, my humanity and what it means to be human without it, without expressing what that means um, in terms of race and culture because that is impacting me all the time, everywhere I go, even in my home. Um, and so that's why, for me, it's important to start with self. Um, the other thing is is that it's real. I've been socialised to... Uh, look outwards so to interpret a situation come to a particular judgment of that 
and then decide whether something's right or wrong on the basis of that and never ever be held accountable to my own internal condition and and reaching that judgment or never ever being um, required to explore how uh, I might be contradict you know sitting in a contradiction and so for me to transcend uh, racial inequity requires an interrogation of my own uh, internal condition and my own contradictions I live in Tamaki on stolen land right and I'm an, I do anti-racism work right um, you know I, I mean that's just a really major obvious contradiction but there are contradictions all over the place and so until we grapple with how we're resolving or seeking to uh, resolve those contradictions in ourselves, how is it possible to stem racial disparity? Like, I'm, yeah, I can fire judgment easily. Um, and if I look, if I take the time and harness the courage to look at how perhaps I've perpetuated that in my life sometime and how, you know, I'm going deep. I'm going deep on us. <laughs> yeah, good. That's good. Now, th these are the things we need to hear. Um, alongside that, you've got the, you know, working within your cultural space. Um, so for Pākehā, engaging with other Pākehā. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's something that I just want to draw out as a really important part of what you've said, because I think, again, as someone who was completely clueless about any of this and who's taken some steps along the journey um, with a huge number of steps still to go, um, it's it's really easy to go, oh, I don't, I don't know much about this. Uh, I'm going to go to the first Māori I can find right. and get them to teach me. Right. Um, what are, what's your thoughts around that? My thoughts are if you choose to... If you recognize that there's something that you don't know that you sense you need to know in order to further progress your anti-racist efforts, my recommendation is do your own study, do your own mahi first before going to seek that answer of someone who's racially different for you. I'm saying this to Pakia people. The reason being is that when I'm asked from a Pakia person for information one there's an assumption that I have that and as a colonized Maori uh, my language culture has has been dispossessed and so sometimes when I'm asked I don't have the answer and I feel really awful because it's a reminder of um, the way in which colonization has worked to dispossess me of who it is that I am two if I do have the answer it feels like it's, um, sometimes it feels, in the absence of a healthy relationship, it feels like it's taking. And our history of colonisation in Aotearoa, New Zealand, came through taking. And so um, taking of land, taking of culture, taking of uh, language. And so... If I was, if Pākehā people are listening to this, I would just ask you to consider um, interrogating what work have you done to seek answers for yourself first 
what um, effort have you put into developing healthy relationships with tangata whenua so that they don't feel like you're taking from them in those moments of you reckoning with all that you don't know? Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, I have no problem with um, my Pākehā friends who have done the relational hard yards. Do the relational hard yards with me, and then we can talk and grapple. But if you haven't done the relational hard yards with me and you're just coming to take and then do with um, our knowledge and our uh, and our culture what it is that you want and there's no reciprocity in that relationship, I'm going to get cranky. It's going to be difficult for me. Uh, it's going to make me probably not want to lean back in in the future. Yeah, and and I, I just acknowledged the irony of a, a white guy asking wahine Māori that question. <laughs> um, oh, but, all good. Um, We've got the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's not, um, I guess I'm not coming to it because I haven't done some work around it. Um, right. I'm coming to it because actually hearing you say as Māori that actually this is this is what it feels like. I think that's really important to hear that actually we can do damage while we're thinking we're doing good. Yeah. You know, we get excited about this journey, we get excited about oh yay, we can jump on this this thing and make the world a better place and I'll go and get get my answers from here. And actually in doing that we just continue to cycle that system around. So yeah, to to hear your your experience of that, I think is really valuable um, also, for those of us who are Pākehā. I think too, when the relationship is a healthy one, it also means that I'm more likely to say, "Hey, bro, have you done any work yeah, yourself? Yeah. Like you're annoying me now." <laughs> but if that relation if that relationship isn't intact, yeah. chances are that. Uh, there might be an experience of tension and those Pākehā people won't even know why there's tension. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, and my experience is that often um, so much is left unsaid. So even in those well-intended moments of asking for help um, and it is given or not given, there's still a conversation there that is uh, left unsaid. Like, bro, you're annoying me, or go do your mahi kaya, go do your homework before you come back, and then come back to me and tell me what you found, and we'll go from there. Yeah, oh, that's cool. This Courageous Conversations work that you're doing, where have you seen that really work well? Like, Are there examples of where you've gone into an organisation and you've seen actually it make a difference? Yeah, right now we're working with a large um, government organisation. I'll keep them um, nameless for now. Um, but we've tra trained over a thousand of their staff, um, and so there's a critical mass of people within the organisation that now have the tools to be able to uh, put race on the table wherever they are in the workplace. Um, and because the tools are taught in a way that gets you thinking about your own condition first and your own racial experience, your personal racial experience first, um, and it gives you a, a way to be able to hear that which is hard to hear and also hear beliefs in a way which 
compassionately challenge your own beliefs or fortify your beliefs. Um, it's, you know, this organisation is having, uh, I understand, having conversations in different places and spaces that have never been had before. The thing is, is that having the, you know, what does it mean for something to be working well, for a conversation to be working well? Uh, for me, no conversa- no courageous conversation about race is ever a perfect one. And if I tap back into my sport brain, it takes 10,000 hours to acquire a new skill with proficiency. And so that means that until until we're speaking for 10,000 hours about race and racism, using these tools, uh, it's going to be, you know, what does it mean to have transformative conversations that lead to systemic change that actually hasn't been achieved in 180 plus years. So yeah, what I know is that when I activate the tools in my personal life and in my professional life, um, I'm able to affirm and legitimate my perspective and challenge my perspective in, in a way that I haven't ever experienced in other aspects of my life. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. It's a shared language, you know. Uh, I mean, our work of Courageous Conversation is to introduce people to a shared language of um, race around how to have productive, healthy, generative conversations about race and racism. And it's about raising consciousness. So it's really difficult to measure how well consciousness is achieved because it's iterative. You know, consciousness raising or racial consciousness is it's uh, iterative. It's ongoing. It never ends. It shifts and changes and morphs. And so how do you measure how well that is? Uh, it's... And it's pretty difficult in in a Western white knowledge system to entertain how to measure that to, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think some some of what I'm hearing you say is that actually this is going to be awkward because it's different from what's your comfortable norm. But actually, just because something's awkward doesn't mean it's not worth doing. 100%. Um, and in fact, probably the opposite, because it is awkward, is is showing you that you're you're stepping into some good spaces. 100%. Um, and that's something we've talked about on the podcast before, is that that actually embrace embracing those awkward spaces is actually really important for healthy growth, um, whether it's personal awkward spaces or whether it's this courageous conversation awkward space, that being able to hold space in that awkwardness um, is really important. Yeah, we often um, in training talk about building our racial equity abs and one of the ways that we can build our racial equity abs is through um, experiencing discomfort and instead of running away from discomfort or trying to uh, smooth over discomfort or, you know, fighting discomfort um, or chasing comfort, we we uh, practice what it means to experience discomfort and open ourselves up to the possible learning that can happen in, as you say, those awkward moments, um, because mm. it is, it's a, it's a space of growth. What are the things that stop these conversations from happening? Well, I go straight to white fragility. I think uh, white fragility is 
for me, one of the biggest blocks in um, inter- honest, authentic interracial dialogue that um, for me in my own racial socialization, I know that when I'm going into a conversation about race with um, someone who is Pākehā or white, if I've had no prior knowledge of them speaking into race or racism before, I can be guaranteed that I'm going to have to navigate some kind of resistance, whether that's overt or covert. And that dynamic of navigating, are you going to shut me down? Are you going to minimize my perspective? Are you going to demand more information and evidence? Are you going to illegitimize my feelings are you going to shut down my belief um are you going to walk away are you going to raise your voice at me I've had a whole lifelong learning around what those dynamics are when I'm bringing forward my racial perspective and so I believe that white fragility is a really really big block and I also believe that as a wahine Māori my challenge is to um not comply with those dynamics when they happen um, by shutting down or staying silent, but figure out a way to activate my voice and my authentic truth and the a higher level of who it is that I am as a wahine Māori, um, you know, like higher level as in higher level of humanity as a wahine Māori in those moments so that I'm not the one leaving that conversation, carrying around frustration at what just played out when I know that that person isn't going to be carrying that around because they're often oblivious to those dynamics unraveling in the conversation. Um, and so, yeah, white fragility is a big one. So even hearing you say, um, you know, are they going to walk away? And I'm thinking, well, actually, that's that's a really privileged place to be, to be able to walk away from that because uh, it's not like you as Māori can walk away from your experience of being Māori in this space. Um, but but as Pākehā, we can choose to engage or not. Absolutely. Um, and I remember a while ago I was seeing some of your, your posts on Facebook and, um, you know, challenging... Pākehā to, to pick up some of the slack um, and and I thought about it and went actually there's been some things some conversations that I've seen in the online space and I've gone oh actually I just don't have the energy to deal with that right now um, I'm going to leave that but again what a what a privileged choice to go well actually that's not affecting me right now so I'm going to leave that alone um, and not saying that you have to engage in every conversation that comes up but but to be prepared to enter those conversations even when it costs you something I think is something that I've learned over the last little while that actually if this is going to change we need Pākehā to go actually I'm prepared for this to cost me something um, because uh, what I get a sense from you is that it costs you something all the time um, yeah is um, that fair? absolutely more often than not uh, I struggle to speak the depth of truth that I want to speak because of that retribution. Um, And, uh, you know, just picking up on what you said about um, privilege and walking away from conversations, 
Um, I think part of our consciousness rests in recognizing that when you do walk away, there is an inherent privilege in being able to do that. Like that's the first step, being able to recognize that that is even uh, even something to be considered as privilege. Um, and also recognizing that the conversation is always going to be there to re-enter. So 180 years in this country, we've been talking about this. It's not going to be, you know, sewn up anytime soon. So the question then becomes, to what extent am I willing to um, lean into my privilege to be able to amplify those voices which historically and currently are not um, being heard, are being silenced and marginalised? That's a big one. Yeah. Um, Before we, we run out of time, I just want to also touch on uh, some work you did for a while with the Ministry of Corrections. Um, you were you were in this courageous space, and so you ended up in in that space. Do you want to just describe what your role was there, um, and uh, yeah, what what your what your aim was? Yeah, I worked in um, the Department of Corrections when I left Unitech. It was a new role that um, the organisation had invested resource into. And so the role was called Practice Manager Education and Training. In short, I oversaw the Northern Region prison portfolio um, and managing all the education and training within the prisons. So I had um, Mount Eden Prison, uh, the Auckland Prison, which is commonly known as Paremoremo, um, Northland Regional Correctional Facility, which is commonly known as NAFA, and Auckland Women's Regional uh, Correctional Facility. And I went in partly because I'm nosy. So in 2014, um, I visited the Oahu Women's Correctional Facility in Hawaii and had a transformative experience spending the day in um, the grounds with the women, incarcerated women, predominantly Native Hawaiian. Came back here and always had um, it in my mind and heart that if I could contribute my educational skills into the prison environment, then I'd give that a whirl. So I went in and I it, it was too hard on my heart um, to see my people incarcerated and spending the time in jail in the conditions um, that they spend their time in and watching how that prison experience um, contributes nothing to wellness or nothing to uh, them being able to thrive and flourish albeit some good things happen you know there are some good people working in the justice system and the in the prison system I couldn't figure out a way in getting the organization to hear that speaking about race racism institutional racism um could lead to the types of organisational outcomes and aspirations that they had around recidivism and around, um, you know, reducing Māori incarceration rates and all that kind of stuff. They 
couldn't hear me in my assertion that talking about race and racism could lead them to where it is that they want to go. And it just got too hard. The racism inherent in some of the leaders um, within the correction system got too hard on my heart. So I ended up leaving and I left with a commitment to myself that I'm going to figure out a way to continue to poke and prod because uh, it's not okay that 64% of the women's prison population is Māori. Uh, It's not okay that over 50% of our men's prison population is Māori. So yeah, that's a little bee in in my bonnet that I continue to have and will continue to work towards. I mean, my dream would be to have um, a courageous conversation about race experience with educators and people working in the criminal justice system um, to explore how race and racism is contributing to a prison, a school to prison pipeline and how that is, how we can figure out ways to transcend that through dialogue. Um, Yeah, that's a dream that I that's a dream that I have. I'd love to do that. So if there are any people in the uh, who work in the prison space in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, you know, let's talk. That's a, that's a great dream. And um, thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability around that of going, actually, that was just too hard. Um, that was heartbreaking to see that. You know, we've touched on a number of episodes now about the justice system and some of the things about it that just don't work Um, and I think really important to acknowledge that actually uh, there is racial stuff going on there as well it's not just there there are systems that are meant for one thing and and don't work it's actually no there are systems that work for some people and not others Um, there are people who are in the decision making spaces that don't have an understanding about the way that this works for different cultures or doesn't work for different cultures. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I was quite blown away by, um, which I'm not sure if many people know, but um, at Corrections, there is, um, a, it's run by a high number of white British, white South African men. Um, I was blown away. I was thought, I when I arrived there, I thought, wow, there are so many white men here from England and South Africa. And what I learned was that um, there is value placed on the English and South African prison systems. And so people who from those countries who come here with that experience, you know, are recruited into our prison system. And I'm thinking, what would they know? They're not required to know um, anything about Te Ao Māori or carry any Māori cultural competency when you arrive to New Zealand, let alone when you get recruited into corrections. And so what is blocking um, the ability for those people in those high-level positions to be able to see that their see themselves racially and how that is playing into the decisions that they're making around the distribution of resources, around the policies that are developed, around who's recruited, around who's promoted, around which programs of work are prioritised. Like it, it, it really blew my mind, really blew my mind. 
Um, and so I would, I, I would, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to sit down with some of those high-level leaders, Pākehā leaders, and just and have a conversation about race. To say, hey, how was it being a Pākehā person in a high-level position at Corrections with a you know disproportionate amount of Māori in your care? What is that experience? How do you arrive at some of your decisions? How do you make sense of it? What leads you to practicing and contributing in the way that you are you know I, I would love that that would be yeah. amazing yeah as we finish today thinking about all the stuff we've talked about what is it that gives you hope hmm. I have two Māori Pacific boys and um, they don't say it but I am required to remain hopeful because I brought them into this world, I'm going to hopefully leave before them. And I can't not be anything but for them. Um, that's that's a really easy, easy question. That, them, their children, their children's children require me to maintain hope in um as I seek to continue my anti-racist efforts and uh, as I seek to reclaim that which has been taken from our whanau and uh, while trying to live a healthy, uh, a healthy, well-flourishing, prosperous life. Well, thanks so much, Kat, for giving your time to talk to us today. Um, and thank you for all that you do in your uh, your courageous conversations work. Uh, we look forward to um, the outcomes of your PhD. Oh my uh, goodness! In a few years' time, <laughs> we'll we'll give you we'll give you some time for that. Oh my goodness! Ehoa, I just want to mihi kiakwe. I want to mihi to you. We've known each other for fifteen years. Uh, I remember the kind of consciousness that I had fifteen years ago, and the kind of consciousness you had fifteen years ago. And so to be um, having this conversation 15 years later and remain connected is, yeah, um, my heart um, feels happy and I feel a bit emotional, actually. So thank you for um, finding time and space and for um, thinking that I would be able to contribute to your kaupapa, which is bringing a little slice of heaven down to earth. Awesome. Well, thank you for what you do to help bring a bit of heaven down to earth. All right. See you later. See ya. He atahu atena, he taunga te kōrero. What a beautiful treasure that conversation is. Kat gave some absolute gold for anyone wanting to engage in these spaces where tension and confusion can often reign. It was a privilege to hear some of her personal journey and the ways she has had to engage with this kaupapa in everyday life. For those who felt really challenged by Kat's words, that's good. It means you heard them. If you're Pākehā like me, entering this sort of space can be unsettling. But again, that's good. Because our settled way our standard engagement with Māori and, frankly, anyone who isn't part of our majority culture is doing damage. So we should be unsettled. We should be feeling awkward. 
But as Kat reinforced, that's where growth happens. That's where breakthrough happens. And not once did I hear Kat say that we as Pākehā should feel guilty about anything, but just commit to examining ourselves and the culture we're part of to see what attitudes or what systems are set up to give some advantage over others, deliberately or unintentionally. If you're listening to this and you're Māori, I have no idea what it's like to be you. I don't know what it's like to have people respond to you and your culture in the way that Kat talks about. But Kat does, and so hopefully you found encouragement in her kōrero. For those who are part of the Christian church, as many of my guests are, I intentionally wanted this kōrero with Kat, who doesn't identify with the Christian religion, because I think it's too easy in the church to fall into the trap of subtly thinking that the church has a monopoly on goodness, or on beauty, on bringing a bit of heaven down to earth. But that simply isn't true as this Atahua Wahine Māori demonstrates. And as the church, we can either get on board with what people like Kat are encouraging us into, or not. But I know which side of that I land on because what Kat is doing is full of redemption, restoration, beauty and goodness. And that is where we find a bit of heaven on earth. So thank you Kat for engaging with us, for your vulnerability for your choice to continue in this kaupapa even when it is challenging at times and may even feel like it's wearing you down. And thank you for inviting us into this space with firm challenge yet much grace. Thank you for all you do to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. I'd love to hear from anyone who found this conversation impacting. Um, you can find me at downtoearthconversations.com or at at downtoearth.conversations on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, let's keep up this call at all. Because this was an invitation into something, not just something complete in and of itself. Um, so hit me up, um, respond to posts, let's, let's have more conversation. Thank you to Ignition Networks for your ongoing support, and thank you to you all for listening. This thing really doesn't work without listeners, so uh, kia ora. Next episode I talk to another good friend, Manny Cox, and we navigate the terrain of the theology of disability and hope. Did God make mistakes when people are born with quote-unquote disabilities, like Manny with his cerebral palsy? What does it mean to be fully human? How does relanguaging play a part in inclusion and embrace of all people? It's another rich and deeply beneficial conversation. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matua i te rangi, kia tapu tō ingoa. Kia tau mai tau rangatira tanga, kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua, kia rite anō ki tō te rangi. Humma e kia mātou ai nei, he taroma mātou mō tēnei rā, mūro mātou hara, me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga, e hara ana kia mātou. Aua hoki mātou e kawea, kia whakawaia, e ngari whakorangia mātou i te kino. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.